Hi, everyone, and welcome to Monday Morning 8 a.m., a podcast and newsletter that goes out every Monday morning at 8 a.m. from firmsconsulting.com, where we distill the insights from the business noise. As always, this is being targeted at our firm's consulting insiders, our long-term and most loyal members, but we make it available to everyone else. If you would like to get the newsletter version of this podcast, which usually contains additional information, please go to firmsconsulting.com forward slash promo and put in your email address and you'll be part of the group that receives the newsletter every Monday morning. And if you're looking for the podcast, go to any podcast app and type in strategy skills and you'll find the channel and Monday Morning ATM is one of the episodes in there. Today, we're going to start with what I call the value chain migration death march. And what I'm referring to here is a tendency universal across all companies anywhere in the world that want to respond to their envy. So what happens is that in any single sector in the world, there's a value chain. On the one side, you get the extreme suppliers. That's usually on the left-hand side. and the right-hand side, you have customers. And what normally happens is the closer you get to customers, not always, but what normally happens is the closer you get to customers, your margins increase. The further away you get from customers, your margins usually decrease. Usually, but there are definitely extreme exceptions and quite common exceptions to the rule. But what's happened in, for example, the tech sector is tech companies by and large tend to operate, not all of them, but those who operate platforms tend to operate on the left-hand side of the value chain. And whatever is hosted on their platforms is what interacts with customers. Think of a bank, for example, right? If you're a bank that happens to host a capability, whether it's some part of your IT and digital infrastructure on a cloud server somewhere hosted by maybe Microsoft or Amazon, that application, that digital application is what interacts with customers, not Amazon. Amazon is hosting the part that interacts with customers. And they do a very good job as well. But moving down the value chain is extremely difficult. And I'm going to pick an example that's been in the news quite a lot. And that is mobile gaming. Video games, for lack of a better word. You know, there's things where people play. I don't know all the video games. There are many of them out there. And they're big, multi-billion dollar businesses. The technology companies want to get into. They don't want to just host the gaming system on which the game sits. They don't want to just have the cloud capability on which the game sits and uses and utilizes. No, they want to have the game. And the thinking is that if you are a cloud-based streaming company that hosts the capabilities of companies on Netflix to, I mean, there's a myriad of companies doing it. The belief is that if the cloud company has such a good understanding of what customers are doing, how they are purchasing things, how they're interacting, when they are using the streaming service, and they have the platform, well, the thinking is that they don't want to continue to be just a dumb, in inverted commas, infrastructure. They want to move down the value chain and they want to lock in access to customers by offering the service that is hosted on the infrastructure. And a lot of the thinking from this comes from the lessons of the telcos in 1990 and early 2000. The telcos went through this. They saw what happened. They laid the infrastructure on which the internet was built. But the companies that made a fortune was not the telcos. It was the companies that piggybacked off the telco internet infrastructure. And the telco share prices and market capitalizations are nowhere near that of Facebook, Microsoft, Amazon, and so on, even Netflix. So what happens is that there's a bit of a trade-off here. As you become some kind of service that's almost like a utility, I mean, it's, you're available everywhere, you're usually the only one providing the service, 
you have no choice but to open your platform to everyone because you're seen as a utility. If there's a lot of competition for the service you offer, you can say, hey, there's so much competition for what we're offering. We're only going to make our platform available to a few people because if we decline some people, they can go to another competitor. In many ways, Facebook is like a utility. It's everywhere. I'm going to argue that Amazon Prime is like a utility. It is everywhere. It's very hard to compete with them. And when you reach that level, you have to open the platform to everyone or the Department of Justice gets involved. Rightly or wrongly, we're not going to debate on the merits of who's right or wrong here. But if you open your platform to everyone, you open your platform to companies that could build an app on your infrastructure that could suck up the majority of the value of the system. So that even though you created the platform on which they exist, you don't get the majority of the money. I mean, in the most simplest example of this, think of companies that own land on which a telco builds a network tower for 5G. Then Apple comes along and they sell their phone, which uses the infrastructure of that telco. So Apple makes a lot of money, but Apple doesn't make as much as they could because they then open their operating system to many people to put in their apps. An app comes along, like Facebook, which makes a ton of money. The point is that, as you can see here, there are different ways of looking at what is the infrastructure. It could be land, it could be the telco, it could be the phone, it could be the operating system on the phone, it could be the app store on the operating system of the phone. But everyone's trying to move closer to the customer. And the lesson here is that most companies fail. Very few tech companies have produced a hit video game. And there's a reason for that, because what makes someone successful at a video game is not what makes them successful at running their core business. And I spoke about this in the previous Monday morning ATM. You know, many years ago, I served a very, very large and significant oil and gas concern, one of the largest in the world. They were my client. And they had the idea that they have this huge mainframe capability. They're sitting on all this data and analytics, and they should create a services function like a consulting firm. They asked me to, to lead it, actually, at one point, but I declined because I thought it would never work. It's not that a services division couldn't exist within this oil and gas company. No, it could. But the services division they wanted to create couldn't exist. Because the way they saw it is they were spending a fortune on oil services businesses. And if they created the capability in-house, they could save on the money they spent on companies providing the service to them. But they could also create a profit center and serve other competitors with this capability and they saw it as a very viable business case. The reality is that it never worked because the way the oil company was run was extremely top-down, extremely risk-averse with decades of data supporting each decision. And when they started doing, for lack of a better word, consulting services and they tried to bring in that kind of thinking into the services function, it never worked. On the one hand, they had all these engineers who were very smart guys and they brought in a lot of consultants, but the engineers wanted certainty in the answers. And if you've ever done a study in strategy or operations, you know that certainty is not something we have a lot of. We don't know with certainty that if you go down this uh, path in your corporate strategy, it's gonna work out because we don't know what the market is gonna look like. And there's no amount of data and there's no amount of research and there's nothing that's gonna give you that certainty. The lesson here is that while you may control a platform, and this is the main insight. It doesn't mean you can do everything in a platform. And it doesn't mean you should do everything in a platform. And if you are going to want to operate in different parts of the platform, you probably have to set up a ring-fenced entity 
that is going to operate according to the rules of that new area you want to compete in rather than levering what made your core business great. What made your core business great is valuable in your core business, but it may not be as valuable in the new part of the platform you want to play in as you get closer to customers. Which is why so many companies, when they want to change their corporate strategies, they are ultimately forced to set up a ring-fenced entity. So value chain migration is very difficult to do. Very few companies have achieved it. What normally happens when a company wants to do it right, they're moving the whole company down the value chain as opposed to keeping the core of the business in one part of the value chain and setting up other successful businesses in other parts of the value chain. Now, the other big topic, which is all over the news, is the fact that Apple Car is about to enter the market. And I mentioned this earlier about what it means for decoupling and so on, but I'm going to take it further because of many uh, questions I received about this. I'm not going to talk about the same point and the same insight I raised earlier. I want to talk about what is core to a business. So in any business you're in, there are certain things that you've decided is the core part of your business and you can never ever remove control of that from your business and hand it to someone else. And for a long time, strategy has taught you that you cannot outsource what is core. Because if you outsource what is core, that means that anyone else can do it. And if anyone else can do it, then how do you have a point of differentiation here? But let me ask you this question. Two similar companies offering the same service in the same sector, do they have the same core assets and capabilities? Is it possible that two direct competitors in the same sector serving the same customers can have two distinct and different core capabilities and assets? The answer is yes, because your point of differentiation doesn't lie with the assets you have. It's the way you use those assets, the way you pull them together and integrate them to do something different from what your competitors are doing. So one of the overriding themes when Apple rumors started coming out is people were saying manufacturing is dead. This is the nail in the coffin for manufacturing in high service-based economies like the United States, which according to these people said that manufacturing is dead and we should drift away from manufacturing and not consider bringing manufacturing back to the United States. Of course, Tesla did not get the memo on the way to being a 800 or so billion dollar company where manufacturing is tightly integrated into their core. The point is this, manufacturing is not dead. If you've built a core capability around profitable manufacturing, you will be profitable as a manufacturer. What you've got to understand is what business you're in. Where do you want to play? How are you going to manufacture? How does manufacturing help you increase the net margin on your product? If the ability to manufacture in-house is not important to increasing the value of whatever you're offering, product or service, then yes, get rid of manufacturing. But that actually comes back to an even deeper insight, which is what is the risk you want to bear? Because manufacturing is not just whether it's core or non-core, it's a risk. And the question becomes, what risks do you want to keep on your balance sheet? And what risks do you want to move off your balance sheet? In other words, outsource. So when we talk about this asset is core or this asset is critical, you must also remember there's a risk attached to each asset, each capability, each critical function. So you can create a spreadsheet or whatever you want, ranking all of your core attributes and core capabilities, all of your critical capabilities, and then you can attach a risk score to it, which the market does anyway. Which then begs the question, if all of your assets and capabilities can be expressed as a risk, 
what risks do you want to bear on your balance sheet and which risks do you not want to bear on your balance sheet? Now for slides members, sometime, it hasn't been updated yet, but we're going to make a future update showing you how we analyze a disease that's affecting the workforce for a company that is a risk now on their balance sheet. Because unless they manage that disease, that's going to affect the way the equity markets respond to them. And the question becomes, can they take that risk off their balance sheet legally, ethically, and in the you know GAAP standards? Or if they can't take the risk off their balance sheet, how do they manage the risk so they're not punished in the equity markets? And this is a, a way of thinking about strategy that could set you apart in terms of thinking about not just assets and capabilities and how you want to move manufacturing off your balance sheet or outsource it. No, you've got to think about the risks you are taking as you keep things on your balance sheets and as you move things off your balance sheet. Every strategy has a risk. Every capability has a risk. Every core you, every core asset you have introduced a risk. You've got to catalog it, score it, decide if you want to keep this risk on your balance sheet. And if you are not equipped, if you're not the best company to manage it, you need to move it off. Now, coming to the third theme, and this is an interesting one because it comes from an executive coaching client in Australia who's the chief operating officer for a very large services company. And the theme is shared values versus paid friends. Now, he runs a very, very prestigious firm. And they have offices in, the bulk of their offices are in Australia, Singapore, Japan, and the United States. And they have to make a very important decision now. How far do they expand outside of these core four markets? And the argument he made to, with me is the following. He said that, Michael, for a long time, Singapore, Japan, and the United States have been close allies of Australia. And therefore, what I'm expecting over the next five, 10 years, no matter which other economies rise in this part of the world, I'm expecting these three countries to constantly come to us for work, to give us the benefit of the doubt, and to grow with us. And I asked him, you know, why, why do you make this assumption? Why do you assume this to be true? And he said, well, it's always been this way. You know, when I was young, this was the way it was. When I joined the firm, this is the way it was. When I worked my way up the ranks until I became a senior partner and then chief operating officer, this was the way it was. Then I asked him, okay, so, so why, is it, why has it always been this way? You know, why do these four countries share the same things in terms of culture and support each other? And we kept on going back and forth, why, why, why? But at the end of the day, after pushing him, the reason these four countries have stuck together for so long is because it leads to co-prosperity. That means by working together, the GDP per capita, the GDP, the security, the safety, and dare I say it, the prestige of these four nations has arisen in lockstep together. It made sense for them to work together because they benefit together. So here's a question I asked him. If co-prosperity is what keeping you together isn't then the question you got to ask yourself is which other countries in the future would be able to create a co-prosperity alliance with australia because those are the countries that are going to want to work with australian companies and want to support you the way the japanese australians and americans have done that for the last 50 or so years i'm not saying the japanese americans or singaporeans and so on are not going to do it in the future. I don't know. That's, this is projecting global geopolitical trends. But that's the question he has to ask himself. That's the question he has to ask himself. If it's about crow prosperity, which it is, the Australians are going to, Australians are going to align themselves with countries that allow it to continue this path towards prosperity. That's just common sense. Other countries would see an alliance with Australia as being part of their 
co-prosperity path up to middle income status, high net worth status, and so on, whatever the ranking is for countries at that level, they're going to ally themselves with Australia. So in the way, in terms of the way he's thinking through where he needs to open offices and where he needs to make investments, it's not whether it's not how much you've done for these other countries or for these other offices in the past. It's where they think the future of their prosperity is going to come from. And that's where they will align themselves. That's just basic economics. So the insight, what is the insight here? The insight here is that whenever I talk to executives about how they're going to make investment decisions in different countries and so on, they always talk to me about shared values, shared alliances, shared history. All of that is very important. But at the end of the day, countries, as do people and companies, make decisions based on where their future prosperity will come from. And it doesn't matter what your shared history is. It matters where their security is going to come from. I read The book I read quite often is the book about the founding of Singapore. It's a very good book about strategy. And there's a chapter in there whereby, this was back in the 50s, I think, where the then prime minister of Singapore was telling his senior people in government to say, look, we've got to change our focus. The future of the world is the United States of America. We may not see it now. We may not see the full impact of this. But over the next few decades, as Britain recedes from the east, America is going to take their place. So we need to anchor ourselves to America. And the way we're going to do that is we're going to send our senior civil servants to get their graduate degrees in American colleges. We're not going to forbid them from going to British colleges, obviously, but we're going to encourage American education. We're going to spend more time with Americans and we're going to have to open our economy so that we encourage Americans to invest here. In the 1940s and 1950s, you could not have seen the rise of the United States. It would have been impossible to see that because the world was different then. The British still had bases around the world. As you make decisions for your career, for your business, and some of you in government listening to this as well, for your country, you got to look at where your co-prosperity is going to come from. And that's where you need to go. The next big theme I want to talk about, and it's a little bit close to me because I used to be a corporate strategy senior partner, is what I call Amazon and knowing that one thing that drives your strategy. And you know, as many of you know, Jeff Bezos is going to step down as CEO from Amazon and take over as uh, chairman or executive chairman, I think it is. And of course, he's done a tremendous job in creating Amazon, the culture and the way he's catalyzed the change of digital e-commerce around the world. He's done a phenomenal job and I think that he will go on to do many other big things because he's still very young, very energetic and obviously he knows what he wants to achieve. But the lesson here is not about Jeff Bezos. Or maybe it is about Jeff Bezos. But the lesson here is about, uh, I'll step out of Jeff Bezos and I'll talk about a client I had many, many years ago. And uh, this was a company that was um, an investment firm. I did one piece of work for the CEO and we became very good friends, but I never ever worked for that CEO again. Not because I didn't like her or anything. I thought she was amazingly talented and she went on to do many big things in the world, but I did feel she did not have the backing of the board and any work we did for her was just never going to be approved, which is what the case was. So we were good friends. We'd always meet in a hotel and she'd tell me what she's doing, but every six or seven months she'd bring in a new consulting firm and they would, that partner would give her her new strategy. And she liked bringing in partners from the London office. And we'd talk about it. And I would counsel her because we we're friends. And every few years, every six or seven months, she'd come up with a new strategy. And she was so excited about it and would talk about it. And she spent a lot of money. I mean, millions and millions and millions of pounds on this. But ultimately, none of it was implemented. And here's the insight here. Her customers were never changing. 
The business she was in for the assets she had, her customers never changed. The first year I worked for her, customers never changed. The second year, they didn't change. The third year, they didn't change. The fourth year, they didn't change. They stayed the same. So every time she would tell me, you know, this firm had done a strategy, she's very impressed with this partner and they're thinking, and I'd ask her a very, just a simple set of questions. If your customers have not changed, why is your strategy changing? And she'd tell me, well, we've acquired new assets. And because we have new assets, the other partners think that the assets need to be deployed in a different way. That's called a resources-based view of strategy. In a resources-based view of strategy, you say that as your resource or asset mix changes, you've got to think of better ways to deploy your resources. And that is not a good way to think about strategy. A discussion I had with Ram Charan on the Strategy Skills podcast a few episodes back. We spoke a lot about Amazon, uh, and Ram's a very nice guy to talk to because he really gets to the point very fast. And the thing about what Amazon has done very well is they have not changed their strategy since, what's it, 1994 or 1993? I think about 1994 or thereabouts, Amazon was created, right? The strategy has always been, how do we reduce the time to deliver and how do you reduce the cost to deliver? That's not to say that they were the lowest cost and that they were fastest initially. No. As uh, one of my colleagues once told me, initially Amazon was not the cheapest and they weren't the fastest, but they realized to compete they had to get there and everything they did from that point on was to arrange themselves to get there and the strategy has not changed because the customer is the same and they know what their customers want so they just are always trying to reduce the cost and reduce the time of delivery while making sure customers have what they want if you are in any business and your strategy is changing every year but your customers are the same then you have a strategy probably dilemma there Because if your customers are the same and you understand your customers and you know what they want, then your strategy should be how to give your customers what they want. But the only reason your strategy should change is because maybe you've realized what you think you are giving your customers is not what they wanted, which means you don't understand your customers, which means you should understand your customers first before you develop your strategy. But what a lot of companies do is they conflate the two. They say, well, in my strategy, I'm going to determine what it is my customers want. And I would tend to separate that. It can be done, and I've done that in many, many uh, strategy engagements for, for clients, whereby I'd, I'd combine the two. But that's whereby it's a distinct phasing, whereby one part is to understand customers, and the other one is to um, roll out the strategy to give customers what they want. I'll give you another example of this, right? And this is um, uh, Slides members will see this update sometime later this year, whereby we're going to put together a marketing strategy for a company. And I was assigned to do this work many years ago, and I don't have a marketing background. And they said, why do you have a strategy partner doing a marketing engagement? And the client said, well, we like this partner and we, we know him for a long time. And when I did the study, I came up against a lot of pushback from the uh, traditional strategy partners and from the marketing strategy partners and teams because they said I was doing it differently from the way they would do it because a very big part of the strategy engagement was understanding who the customers are, what they want and what they don't want. And then I simply said, okay, if this is what they want and what they don't want, how do we reconfigure the business to give them what they want? That's one. And how do we market it to them and how do we brand it to them? But that's an example whereby I didn't just start with the strategy, looking at competitors and what's happening in the market. No, you need to know who your customers are first and give them what they want, but you need to have that first bit. 
And Amazon has done that very well. They know who their customers are. And all the decisions they make is to say, okay, if we don't have this capability, but we need this capability to give our customers what they want, let's get this capability. Versus other companies who would say, these are the assets we have. Now, which customers should we serve with these assets? And that's a resource-based view of strategy. And the problem with the resource-based view of strategy is that you must make decisions in terms of what to do based on where the market is going. You have to always look at the market. In every single company I've ever served, if you look at their strategy, there'll probably be like 100, sometimes 200, sometimes 300 slides. But there's always one chart that captures their strategy. For insiders, firms consulting insiders who have access to the market entry strategy study and slides members have access to those editable files, we have one chart there called the growth growth matrix where we take the growth in revenue for each sector in the economy and plot it against the growth in employment. And the strategy for the bank, if they want to make the investment, is to always invest in sectors that are productive where the growth in employees is slightly less than the growth in revenue. Not a lot less, but slightly less. That became the slide that all the strategy decisions were based on. In the corporate strategy and transformation study, slides members can, will soon be able to see all of the slides and firms consulting insiders can see quite a lot of the videos that have been released already. The entire discussion with the board came down to one slide where we plotted the, um, on one axis, we had distance, geographic distance from the domestic market. So you have domestic market, region, rest of continent, rest of world. And the other axis, we have distance or adjacency to the core business, which is electricity, electricity support, energy, and other. And all we did is we took all of their businesses and investments and we worked out the economic profit. And we plotted it on that, I think it was a three by three or four by four matrix. And for those that made an economic profit, we made it one color. And those who destroyed economic value, we made it another color. And it just jumps out that as you stray further from the core, you destroy economic value. So in that study, you know, there's lots of slides, but everything comes back to this. So as you are doing strategy work, the first question you've got to ask yourself is, who are my customers and how do I serve them? And you don't need tons of analysis to prove the case of where to play. It's usually just one analysis. So finally, I'm going to wrap up today's Monday morning, 8 a.m. by talking about a big theme I see with executive coaching clients, which I call promising careers are also a Venus flytrap. No offense to the Venus flytrap. I'm sure it's a fine plant. So whenever I deal with clients, I always talk to them about how is your career doing? We've developed a strategy for you. What are the results you are seeing? And a lot of them get excited and say, well, Michael, I saw a 5%, 10% increase in my revenue year on year. And then I always correct them and say, well, let's, let's remove inflation from that first. And now let's remove the mean increase in uh, base salary and uh, bonuses that your peers received. Because that's then your net improvement in your career, right? Remember to always do this. Don't just say you're getting a 20% salary increase and your colleagues are getting a 30% salary increase because that's a problem. Or don't get excited about a 10% salary increase when inflation in your country is 15%. Then they're actually paying you less. But let's assume your net, your real improvement is actually 15% a year, which is pretty good. When clients get excited about it, I always caution them that they're falling for what I call the Venus flytrap. What that means is that a 5, 10, 15% improvement in your career is nice. Of course, you feel good about that, right? Uh, you feel comfortable when you go to Christmas parties with your families. You don't feel so bad when your brother drives up in a Porsche 
convertible Porsche and tells you about his thriving business and so on. But if you extrapolate a 10% growth in your career over 5 to 10 years, it's not that significant. That means your salary is going to double or go up 150%. Now, that may seem like a lot, but let's, let's work with the numbers here, right? Most of our clients between the age of 35 and 45 in executive coaching, and they are senior. These are successful people. These are not people struggling. They are successful. They're executive vice presidents, senior vice presidents. Some of them are chief operating officers and so on. And some of them are even very senior partners in consulting firms. If you're earning $350,000 a year, in 10 years, you're going to earn $700,000 a year. Now, that may seem like a lot to you now. But in 10 years, that's not going to be a lot to you. But what is the big insight here? The big insight here is that when your career is not going very well, let's assume you're not getting an increase, you're not getting promoted, you know it's going badly. And then you have a burning platform to make a big change to your career. When your career is showing a 5 to 15% improvement, it's a dangerous place because you're doing well enough that you think with a little bit more effort and time you can do very well. So you keep to your existing plan for the next 5 to 10 years. But if you're 35 and you're only 45 and you realize your plan didn't work, what can you do with your career? Not a lot. So what I always tell clients is that you want to be in two of three places. You want to be doing really bad in your career so you have an incentive to change it. You're going to be doing really well where the improvement is material and you don't need to change what you are doing. Well, you need to change something, but I'll tell you what that is in a second. But you don't want to be in a place where it's just good enough to justify you continuing because you can end up burning up a lot of your life. So I spoke about you need to not change some things and change some things. Let me explain what that means here. I have a client who runs a um, resources company, part of their operations in Central Asia. And he's built with us, he's built a good system to run his teams. And he believes that to go further to the next level, he's got to run his teams harder and work harder. But how much more can he work? I mean, realistically, he doesn't even see his wife and children. So what he needs is not to optimize his system. He needs a new system. So his current system is a easy way. He uses our leadership journal, which teaches him how he can manage his teams to get the best out of them. It's a system of controlling his teams. Now, what he wants to do is put that on steroids, have more meetings, more projects, so he, he moves up in the world. And what I told him is that you need to move from a system of control to a system that controls. There's a difference here. In the system of control, we showed him how to manage meetings so that he gets his team delivering on their critical path tasks for important projects. For the system that controls, I now need him to move to step out of the management of his teams so that the system he puts in place gets them to deliver without him being in every meeting. It took me a long time to get him to think that way, but that's what he needs to do. He needs to move away from the system and running everything for everyone to think about, are we doing the right things? Are we pursuing the right initiatives? Is my company investing in the right ventures in Central Asia? So as you continue with your career, be careful of getting just good enough success because maybe that's the best you're ever going to get. And if you think it can get better, it may not get better and you may be stuck there. You know, an example I give is of clients who go to the traditional path. You study in high school very hard. You get into a good university, preferably Ivy League. You then uh, graduate, struggling a little bit to graduate with great grades, belonging to the right clubs. You're now about, what, 21, 22? You then work for two years at, again, a brand name company. 
You then go to your MBA. If you're lucky, around 24, 25, you spend two years doing your MBA. You get out when you're 27. If you play your cards right, you get into a prestigious firm, which means that if you do everything right, you get to what would be equivalent of a junior partner by the time you're about 32, maybe 31 if you're good. Senior partner by the time you're 33, 35, if you're lucky. Now, what happens if you follow this path from the time you're in high school, but each time you don't really have breakout success, but you do just good enough to give you confidence you're going to have breakout success. But the thing is, by the time you get to 35, you realize that, well, I've done something wrong. And that's the danger with following the just good enough path. By the time you realize you've actually failed, you've burnt up so much of your life that it's pretty hard to put together a career transformation, not impossible, by the time you're 35. And in some cases, I've seen people trying to do it at the time they're 45. So don't celebrate good enough. It's a trap everyone's fallen for at some stage in their life, whether it's a, a week, a month, a year, sometimes the entire life. I've fallen for it at times. I know everyone has fallen for it. In some part of your life, you're going to fall for it, which is okay. But you need to shake out of it and make sure that you're not in it for 5, 10, 15 years. If for five years you're doing the same thing and getting some bare successes, got to step out and say, what am I doing wrong? And remember the rule. It's not about what assets and capabilities you have. It's about thinking who it is you're trying to impress and how do you serve them. As always, I'm looking forward to speaking to you next week, Monday morning at 8 a.m. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.